Hello lovely listeners, welcome back to another episode of Coffee and Crime, a true crime podcast hosted by myself, Lisa Marie Imray. Hello to anyone tuning in for the first time, it's amazing to have you here. Each week I sit down with a cup of coffee and I talk about a true crime story. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, then I highly suggest hitting that subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening to the podcast on. That could be Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Amazon Music. Also, you can get in touch on Facebook or Instagram at Coffee and Crime Podcast with your thoughts and feelings of any episodes, recommendations for future episodes, or just anything true crime related. I honestly think it's probably time I get myself a proper intro. You know, something with some like cool music or like sound of coffee, like sound of handcuffs, ching ching. <laughs> That's what I think handcuffs sound like. I don't know. I might put a pin in that but I'll probably never circle back to it. So we're going to step away from murderers this week, or at least someone who is not known by murderous crimes. I don't know. I'm, I'm really excited for this week's episode. You know, I thought this is a true crime podcast, and murder is not the only crime you can commit. So this week, we are going to be looking at a man who was public enemy, number one. He was a bit of a gangster, Spending all my life living in a gangster paradise. He is probably one of the most well-known, notorious bank robbers of the 1930s. That may be a few clues. Can you guess who it is? If you can't, it's fine. I'm going to tell you anyway. Today we are looking at the life and crimes of John Jackrabbit Dillinger. I cannot get over how cool these gangsters' nicknames are. We're going to listen, we're going to hear some today, and I, I think they're brilliant. I really do. But anyway, let us crack into it. Warning. The following episode contains adult language, discussion on assault, prostitution, suicide, gun use, and murder that listeners may find disturbing. The podcast is intended for listeners 16 years and above. Listener discretion is advised. John Herbert Dillinger was born on the 22nd of June 1903 in Indianapolis, Indiana. He was the younger brother to Audrey and she was 18 at the time that John was born, so a fair bit of an age gap. But his parents were John Wilson Dillinger and Mary Ellen Lancaster. So here we have another classic father-son have the same name. We love that. I seem to keep picking these stories. So I will call the dad John Sr., and stick to just John for our main character today, because we do talk about them a lot together. So I do apologise if it gets confusing. Anyway, the Dillingers were a middle-class family. John Sr. was a hard worker. He was a grocer, and he did uphold a bit of a strict household. This was very common for back in those days. You know, it was like physical punishment for discipline. However, he did give credit where credit was due. Yeah, he was, I suppose, fair, but obviously we know that you shouldn't really use physical punishment. <laughs> it's not cool, but like I said, it was normal back then. And John, our main John, unfortunately, he just didn't achieve much that was positive in the eyes of his father. So he did get a clip around the ear a fair few times. Now, the Dillingers lived in the Oak Hill section of Indianapolis, which is quite a nice residential area. It's not too close to the busy city, but it's not too far out the way to be rural or anything like that. 
Now, Indianapolis around the early 1900s sounded like a really decent place to live. The economy was good. There was lots of jobs due to the rise of automobiles. Indianapolis held a speedway race every year, so that would bring lots of people in, lots of money in. Um, also, it was on its way to becoming a major hub for regional transport, a major trucking centre. There was low amounts of traffic congestion because there was heaps of highways and motorways around the city, which was quite good for the workers in the middle of the city. There was a huge natural gas deposit, which was found in east central Indiana, followed by the discovery of oil, which led to major glass companies being formed, more automobile manufacturers being formed, like just heaps of jobs. But the most interesting, well, what I think is the most interesting little fact about Indianapolis is that the first recorded female self-made millionaire made her fortune in Indianapolis. And this was Madam C.J. Walker, who was an African-American entrepreneur who had her own cosmetics manufacturing company. And she moved to Indianapolis and became a millionaire. So you go, girl. But yeah, that's why Indianapolis in the early 1900s sounded like the place to be. But let's get back to John. So just before his fourth birthday in 1907, unfortunately, his mother, Mary Ellen, passed away after suffering from a stroke. And he was a bit of a mama's boy. So this really sucked for him. His sister, Audrey, also got married in the same year. And her and her new husband, Emmett Hancock, they decided to take John into their care. Um, John Sr. was not dealing with the death of his wife very well. He was becoming more aggressive and more abusive. And Audrey just didn't want her little brother to be witness to that, I guess. So, yep, John lived with Audrey and Emmett for about seven years. Emmett wasn't 100% on board with this. I mean, John was quite a handful. He was a very energetic kid. He's now just lost his mum. You know, he's a handful. And Audrey and Emmett go to have seven kids of their own. So it was a lot, right? We can all kind of see that it was a lot. Then in 1912, John Sr. remarried. He married a woman named Lizzie Fields. So Audrey and Emmett felt like it was an okay time to put John back into their father's care. He's 11 now. He's grown up a little bit should be all good. Well, John didn't like his new stepmother. He kind of portrayed her as like the evil stepmother. But later in life, he would say that actually she was a really nice lady. And he was just a bit of a dick to her because he thought he could. John Sr. and Lizzie went on to have three more children of their own. So John was never alone. But there was a sense of being unwanted for him in a lot of places in his childhood after being kind of pawned off from his sister and then his dad having three more kids that needed their attention, you know, he just felt a bit like he didn't really have a sense of belonging, I guess would be the way to put it. So John seemed to do okay when it came to schooling. His teachers said that he was a very hands-on kind of student. He preferred classes where he could be working with his hands. He was quick-witted, quite popular, a little bit cocky sometimes. He would bully younger and smaller children, which is not cool. He started, like, taking their lunch money, that kind of bullying. <laughs> it's, like, so typical. <laughs> Give me your lunch money. Um, but academically, he was about average. He wasn't dumb. He wasn't Einstein. He was about average. 
Um, John dropped out of school at 16 years old, not for any particular reason, he just wanted to earn his own money. So he got a job as an apprentice machinist at James P. Bircham's Reliance Specialty Company, which was just a machine shop, should have just said that. And his boss and co-workers said that he was very hardworking. He could like fit things together in his mind or make a plan in his mind and then make it happen. So he was quite intelligent streetwise, I guess. John also started running errands for the Board of Trade, which is like a business for businesses. They helped businesses out. And he also dabbled in electrical work as well. But unfortunately, it just wasn't enough for John. He was bored. He started staying out all night. He would go to the local pool hall, drinking and smoking with older guys. Um, And then sometimes he went out and decided to fight people. He visited prostitutes and caused trouble where he felt like it. So a bit of an up and down. I mean, he's 16. He's trying to find out where, again, that sense of belonging in society. In 1921, John Sr. ended up selling the grocery store and moved his family about 30 minutes away to Mooresville. And he decided to make this move to a more rural area because he believed that it would deter John from the temptations of the city life. I guess. (laughs) Um, John ended up playing semi-pro baseball for the Mooresville Athletic Club and this is where he was given the name Jack Rabbit because he was quick on his feet. He played shortstop, which I have no idea what that is because I don't know baseball, Um, but he was really good. He was very, very good at baseball. Uh, He would win 25 US dollars for every game that the team won and also bonus if he played outstandingly well, which he usually did. 25 US dollars is equivalent to 660 New Zealand dollars today. So that's a fair bit of money for an 18-year-old to be making. So good on you, John. However, in 1922, within a year of moving to Mooresville, John got arrested on an auto theft charge. So yeah, John Sr. was not happy (laughs) because he hoped that the move would stop him doing that kind of thing, but it didn't. It didn't work. So John Sr. ended up giving his son an ultimatum. He would bail him out of jail if he enlisted in the military, got some discipline, and sorted his shit out. So in 1923, this is exactly what John did. He became a petty officer third-class machinery repairman in the U.S. Navy, and he was aboard the battleship USS Utah, But yeah, it didn't last very long. Um, 22 days into his service, he went AWOL. He then returned to the ship and was slapped with a fine and was put into solitary confinement for 10 days. After this little stint, (laughs) two days after his solitary confinement, he left again. He came back, he got another five days in solitary confinement, and then from then on, he kept getting disciplined for insubordination. He didn't want to follow rules, he didn't want people telling him what to do, he wanted to call the shots. So then in December of 1923, six months into his service, when the USS Utah was docked in Boston, Massachusetts, John was on a 24-hour leave and he just didn't return. So he was dishonorably discharged as a deserter of the US Navy, which is a pretty big deal. So he's in Massachusetts, he's left the Navy, he's got the whole of America to go and explore and live his life, and old Johnny Boy decides to go back 
to Mooresville, Indiana, which is 15 hours away. So it's a hefty journey he has to make to go back to his dad. Yo, daddy gonna be pissed, John. (laughs) You have deserted the US Navy. Like, I don't get why. I don't get why. But anyway, he's back in Mooresville. It's 1924 and John meets Beryl Ethel Hovius. Falls in love, gets married and vows that this is it. He's going to be clean. He's going to settle down and he's going to live a good life. Do we believe John? No, we do not. (laughs) John doesn't have a job. Beryl doesn't have a job. They are living at a farmhouse on John Sr.'s property. And within weeks of being married, John is arrested for stealing 41 buff Orpington chickens. Okay, so I just had to search up what buff Orpington chickens were because (laughs) I didn't realise there were different breeds of chicken. I thought chickens were chickens. But it turns out that buff Orpington chickens are top tier. They fit into any kind of flock. They're very good pets, but they also produce the best eggs and the best meat because they are plump and juicy. <laughs> like, ask me anything about serial killers and crimes and criminals, and I'm good. Ask me anything about chickens, <laughs> and I'm stumped. Anyways, so John Sr. kicked the newlyweds out and after leaving the farm, they moved into Beryl's parents' house, which was in Martinsville, just 20 minutes down the road. And while in Martinsville, John found employment at an upholstery shop and he also joined the Martinsville Athletics Club baseball team. And this is where he met Ed Singleton. Now, Ed was the cousin of John's stepmother but he was also the umpire for the Martinsville baseball team. So, yeesh, a small world after all. Ed was about 10, 11 years older than John, and he'd already spent some time in the slammer. You know, he'd already served some time for petty theft, public nuisance, that kind of thing. But the two of them started to get quite close. Ed would give John a ride home after games or trainings, Uh, He started giving John some of his bootleg brew, which is illegal alcohol that is very strong. So on one night, the two of them, they're getting drunk. And Ed tells John about Frank Morgan, who was an elderly gentleman. He had his own grocer store and he was quite wealthy. Cha-ching, Richie Rich. And Ed wanted to have some of that for himself. So he convinced John to help him out with a robbery, so they could get themselves some cash. September 24th, 1924, Ed and John, they get drunk, and then they head over to Frank's shop. Ed stays in the car as the getaway driver, and John takes an iron bar wrapped in cotton into the shop and hits Frank over the head with it, which knocks him out. He crumples to the floor. John thought he killed him, so he had a bit of a panic. He went to leave the store, but then, luckily... Frank started getting up. He started regaining consciousness. So John goes back in and he pistol whips him. So he gets out his gun and then he hits him on the head with the butt of the gun, which makes no sense. If you've just freaked out that you've killed the guy, why do you? I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, as he hits Frank with the gun, it goes off and shoots at the ground. So luckily it didn't hit anyone. But because it went off with a bang, 
Everyone's freaking out now. John grabbed $50 from the till and he ran out towards the street where Ed is with the car. But Ed has driven off and stranded John because he got scared when the gun went off as well. So John's there, he's stranded, and he ends up making his way back to Mooresville, his dad's place. Like, kid, you are pushing your luck with your father. He goes back, but he ends up getting arrested the next day because someone heard the commotion at Frank's shop and recognized John and Ed from the baseball team. So they get arrested. Now, luckily, Frank was okay in the end. He just was a bit shaken up, a bit knocked up, but he was all good. Thankfully, nothing too severe. So when they got arrested, Ed lawyered up real quick and he pleaded not guilty, but he ended up getting a two to five year sentence. John, on the other hand, now he wanted to do the same thing, but John Sr. said to him, quote, Johnny, if you did this thing, the only way is to own up to it. They'll go easy on you and you'll get a new start, end quote. So John did this. He pleaded guilty and did not obtain a defense lawyer, hoping that because he came clean, he didn't lawyer up, the judge will be lenient towards him. Okay, lovely listeners, Lisa's life advice. Regardless if you are innocent or guilty of something, never, ever, ever say anything to police or authorities without legal counsel. It's stated in your Miranda rights, anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. Now, like I said, it doesn't matter if you're innocent or guilty, things can be twisted, misconstrued, taken out of context. So if you're ever in this situation, and I really hope you're not, just lawyer up. Now, we know that John is guilty, but by not having a defense lawyer, he wasn't able to get a punishment that fit his crime. He wasn't able to explain to the judge how Ed Singleton, who was an ex-convict, heavily influenced him or about the bootleg brew that was involved. No, he pleaded guilty, so he just got a sentence. And the sentence was 10 to 20 years for assault and battery with intent to rob and a conspiracy to commit a felon. Now, don't get me wrong, it's awful what happened to Frank. And absolutely, John needs to pay for what he did. However, 10 to 20 years for $50? I personally think that's too long. You may disagree. You may say, absolutely, he needs to be deterred. Like, 100%, I I can see why. I just think... I, I just think it's a bit long. I think if he got a two to five year sentence like Ed Singleton did, things would have been a lot better. But no, he got 10 to 20 years. John and his dad were shocked at the sentence. And because John Sr. had told Johnny to do this, he felt incredibly guilty. He regretted the advice he'd gave him and he joined in his son pleading for a shorter sentence. So I know kind of at the start I made John Sr. sound like a bit of a douchebag. He actually isn't. And I actually feel a bit, I feel kind of bad. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, John Wilson Dillinger. You're actually quite a good guy. So John was sent to Indiana Reformatory to begin his sentence. And he found some pleasure in the prison by playing baseball. And his talent drew the attention of Governor Harry Leslie, who also advocated for John to be paroled or released sooner. 
1929, after serving five years, John's request was still being denied. So he just turns around and he asks the parole board if he could be transferred to Indiana State Prison to play for the baseball team there, since they play real ball up there, apparently. And Governor Lindsley supported this request from John because he heavily believed that baseball was vital to John's reformation. So John's request was granted and he was transferred to Indiana State Prison, quote, so he can play baseball, end quote. Now, I know John requested this. However, Indiana State Prison is a maximum security prison. Like that's where the bad guys go. The rapists, the serial killers, the murderers, like not a petty thief. And even if it was for baseball, how does sending a petty petty thief to a maximum security prison going to help? Like, it just really doesn't make sense. And it it doesn't actually help John. Because he did transfer to Indiana State, Beryl, she filed for a divorce and the couple separated. So now John is in the maximum security prison serving the remainder of his sentence and year after year his request is being denied to be released so he is growing bitter and mean right he would tell guards quote I will be the meanest bastard you ever saw when I get out of here end quote so what else does John do when he's in prison maximum security prison he meets other criminals he meets Harry Pete Pierpont, Fat Charles Makeley, Russell Booby Clark, and Homer Van Meter. All of them are seasoned bank robbers. Some of them were in the same gang as Herman Lamb, who was a German-American bank robber, and he's often referred to as the father of modern-day bank robbery. Like, surprise, freaking surprise, he is meeting other bad guys, and they are teaching them teaching John, sorry, everything they know. So as the years go on, they start like planning future heists and and how to escape prison and making all these plans for when they all get out. And in 1930, Harmon Lamb, the father of modern day bank robbery, he died after shooting himself when apprehended by law enforcement after a botched bank robbery. He didn't want to spend one second in jail, so he made sure he didn't. Now, the surviving members of the gang that was with him at this robbery, they ended up in Indiana State Prison too, and they met John. This was Walter Dietrich, I think that's how you say his name, Walter Dietrich, and James Oklahoma Jack Clark. (laughs) Again, gangsters and their names, their nicknames, I love it. So Walter and James also thought that John would be great for heists, and they taught him everything they knew from working with Harmon Lamb and the system that he had for robbing banks. And John just soaked it all in. Then in 1933, John Sr. had started a petition for his son's release and he got 184 signatures. Then on May 22nd of that year, it worked. John was finally paroled after serving nine and a half years. However, 1933, it's the height of the Great Depression, so finding work was next to impossible. So what does old Johnny Boy do? Well, he commits a string of bank robberies, of course. 
He starts in Indiana and Ohio, which are about three or four hours apart, using the tips and tricks that he's just been taught. He starts reaching out to his newfound friends who have already been released, and they all got to work planning heists and how to, like, get the ones that are still in prison out of prison. So, for John and his little posse to successfully pull off these bank robberies, they applied what we now know as the Lamb Technique, which is named after Herman Lamb himself. The Lamb Technique... Just in case you ever thought about robbing a bank, I'm going to tell you how to do it. (laughs) So the lamb technique is when you case a bank, which means you have to study the bank, develop a detailed floor plan, noting locations of safes and exits, rotation of guards, just knowing everything you possibly can about a bank. Then you send in a gang member disguised as a journalist pretending to conduct an interview or a feature on the bank um, with bank managers, get them to show them around. Then after all the notes were gathered, a strict timeline would be planned out. Jobs will be given out to each member. So there needs to be a lookout, a getaway driver, a lobby man and a vault man. They got supplies sourced like Thompson submachine guns, bulletproof vests, Ford coupes with V8 engines, gasoline, medical kits, you know, everything you need to rob a bank. And to get these supplies, the little group would need to attack police arsenals. Now, when the gang were inside the banks, they would use the guns to get the customers and the staff to comply, take the money they could get. But this was a good thing, and this is why some people actually liked John Dillinger, he would never rob from the customers and staff personally. It would only be money held in the safes. So there were often cases where customers would empty their own pockets just to kind of like save themselves, but they would be told to put their hard-earned money away. But then to escape, the gang would take a couple of hostages as they left the bank to be human shields, essentially, deterring law enforcement from shooting at them just in case... The hostages were shot, you know, the innocent people. And then they would get in the car, make their getaway, dump the car, go to a hideout, and then repeat. So June 21st, a month after being paroled, $10,000 was stolen from the new Carlisle National Bank in Ohio. July 17th, $3,500 was stolen from the commercial bank in Indiana. August 4th, $6,700 was stolen from Mount Pelier National Bank, Indiana. August 14th, $6,000 was stolen from Bluffton Bank, Ohio. September 6th, $21,000 was stolen from Massachusetts Avenue State Bank, Indiana. Now, I was going to do the whole what it's equivalent to nowadays, but honestly, I couldn't be bothered. Sorry. (laughs) So police managed to track John down in Dayton, Ohio, and he was arrested on September 22nd, 1933, exactly four months after his release. Manns was busy. He was busy. So John was indicted to Allen County Jail in Lima, Ohio, about an hour away from where he was picked up. And this was for the Bluffton bank robbery. Now, while he was being frisked, to go into the jail, the guards found some paperwork, some documentation that seemed to be a prison escape plan, but not quite sure. They couldn't make sense of it. 
Then, four days later, back over at Indiana State Prison, eight of Dillinger's new friends that were still incarcerated, they escaped because, I know this is all over the shop, while John was robbing Indiana Banks, he was also smuggling shotguns into the state prison. So that when John was caught in Allen County, they were able to get out. Four of them dressed up as guards from Indiana State and went to Allen County and told the sheriff they were, they were instructed to transfer John back to Indiana State. But when the sheriff asked for their credentials, they pulled their guns, they beat up the sheriff, took the keys and freed John, making their getaway. Prison escape number one for John Jackrabbit Dillinger. Now, unfortunately, the sheriff died and two other guards were injured in this escape plan. So business continued as per usual for John and the new Dillinger gang, as they were named. This gang was made up of bank robbers that he'd met in jail or some of their friends and associates. Some of their wives and girlfriends were involved, offering houses as safe houses or bases for the boys to, you know, set up, plan in, hide away in. So the original members of the Dillinger gang were John Red Hamilton, Harry Pete Pierpont, Fat Charles Makeley, Russell Booby Clark, <laughs> Booby, <laughs> Ed Schaus, Harry Copeland, John Paul Chase, Eddie Bentz, and Tommy Gannon. Now, not all of these members were at every bank robbery or every prison stint, but they were all loyal to John, and we'll see some more come into the picture later on. So, October 12th, the day after escaping Allen County Jail, $12,000 was stolen from Home Banking Court Company in Ohio. October 23rd, $74,802 was stolen from Central National Bank and Trust Co. in Indiana. And this was the Dillinger Gang's biggest stint, biggest robbery. So I had to do the equivalent money for it. So 74,802 US dollars in 1933 is equivalent to 2,745,705 New Zealand dollars today. Damn, that is a lot of money. <laughs> so after this heist in Indiana, the gang made their way to Chicago, Illinois to hide out. And then in late October, a couple of weeks later, they were at a dance hall. And this is where John met Evelyn Billy Franchette. Billy was a singer slash waitress who was working at the club when she met John. She was French American Indian. So she couldn't get good jobs or anything because there was kind of a prejudice about the fact that she was she's from Native American bloodlines, you know, people being racist, love that. But when she met John, their relationship was fast and passionate. John adored Billy. And but he didn't really have time to date. You know, he was a wanted man. He was always moving, but he wanted Billy. And she would later say, quote, John was good to me. He looked after me and bought me all kinds of jewelry and cars and pets. And we went places and we saw things and he gave me everything a girl wants. He treated me like a lady, end quote. Billy did participate in some of the heists, but not really. She drove a getaway car once, but was more of a girlfriend. And John did. He really did love Billy. And we'll see why in, in a little bit. 
November 20th, $28,000 was stolen from American Bank and Trust Co. Wisconsin. So they now made their way six and a half hours north from Indiana. Then December 13th, 1933, $8,700 was stolen from the Unity Trust and Savings Bank in Chicago. However, it wasn't the work of the Dillinger gang, but police were put on high alert because they thought it was. It actually turned out to be a different group of robbers. Cool. So Chicago detective William Shanley was following a tip regarding the location of one of the Dillinger cars and he encountered Red Hamilton. Red pulled out his pistol and fatally shot Shanley. So his death prompted the establishment of a 40-man Dillinger squad, a task force solely dedicated in capturing John and all of his associates. January 25th, 1934, $20,000 was stolen from First National Bank, Indiana. Now, this heist in particular was the first time serious violence occurred at a Dillinger gang robbery. The getaway plan did not go as smoothly as it should have done. So this heist only had three members of the gang working. A lot of the other ones were enjoying the money they had stolen on trips, vacations. It's the holiday season still, really, Christmas and New Year. So there was only three of them. It was Dillinger, Red, and an unidentified driver. So John, he went in to steal the money, and Red was the lookout. But when the bank manager hit the panic alarm button, Red came in to help John get the money and get out of there quicker. But this meant there was no lookout to warn John when four police officers came nearby. They saw the commotion going on through the window and immediately called for backup so that by the time that John and Red were coming out of the bank, it was completely surrounded. So John and Red used the bank manager and the vice president of the bank as human shields, but they were still met with heavy gunfire. John got hit in the chest four times, but he was wearing a bulletproof vest, so did no damage. But John returned the fire in the direction they came, and he shot Officer Patrick O'Malley eight times in the chest. Unfortunately, he was not wearing a bulletproof vest, and he died. Red got shot through the hand and it took off the ends of a couple of his fingers and he couldn't get the door closed on the getaway car so it ripped off as they were driving away and it hit another vehicle. It was just a mess. This this robbery was just chaotic. Now police were able to get prints off the fingertips that Red had left behind, I guess. And that's how they knew that Red Hamilton was in the Dillinger gang. Now, there are some people who debate that John was not the one to kill O'Malley, and further yet, they debate that John wasn't even at the robbery. I was trying to find the reason or the evidence that people put forward for, like, this debate, but I couldn't. I couldn't. And all the police officer and witness reports describe John as being there and they heard him shout at O'Malley before killing him quote I'll get that son of a bitch end quote now John stood out from his gang um, because he was typically the best dressed. now they all wore suits they all dressed sharply but John managed to pull it off a lot better than his associates you know a lot of them were roughed up from jail had battle scars all over their faces from their other crimes and whatnot 
but not John. He was he was quite quite dapper. Now, Officer Patrick O'Malley was John's first and only murder in his life of crime, which I think is quite interesting. There are a lot of, you know, deaths credited to John and his gang. The body count the gang amounted to collectively in the end was 10, but only one of them came from John's hand. And I thought that was quite interesting. So John, Red and the driver made their way from Indiana to Chicago to dump the car. Then they went 17 hours south to Florida, then 20 hours west to Texas, and then 15 hours west again to Arizona. They were being constantly tailed by law enforcement. Everyone was on high alert, so no bank robberies could happen until the shit calmed down, you know? And this moving between states from Indiana to Chicago to Florida to Texas to Arizona happened in the space of a week. A week! That is a lot of driving! (laughs) And they managed to pick up one or two other members of the gang on the road. So in Arizona, there were four members of the gang known to be there. They were identified, but believed to be others there as well. However, four of them were known to be there with their girlfriends. And John had taken Billy with him as well. And they were hiding out at the Hotel Congress in Tucson. And on the 21st of January, six days after the robbery, a fire broke out at the hotel, forcing the occupants to evacuate. And the gang had to leave all their luggage behind. But their luggage was suitcases filled with money. So they were quite desperate to get that back. Hmm, I think I would be too. (laughs) So... Some firemen were tipped handsomely to retrieve the luggage, and they did. And some of these firemen recognized the gang members from true crime detective magazines, newspapers that covered the string of robberies, and they alerted the Tucson police. January 25th, four days after the fire, Russell Booby Clark... (laughs) Booby... He was arrested and was found in possession of $1,264. Fat Charles Makeley was arrested at a radio shop while he was looking for a phone that could tap into police radios. And he was in possession of only $794. Harry Pete Pierpont and his girlfriend Mary Kinder was caught by a staged routine traffic stop and they were found with $3,200. So old Johnny Boy was the last to be captured. He made his way to a safe house that they had in Tucson. The reason why they stayed at the hotel and not the safe house was because it was undergoing floor waxing. Some little renovation work. So they had to stay at the hotel. Like That is so unlucky, in all honesty. But at 6.30pm on January 25th, John was detained. And upon his arrest, he said, quote, Well, I'll be damned. End quote. John wasn't aware that the other members had already been arrested, but he was found in possession of over $25,000, three Thompson submachine guns, two Winchester rifles, and five bulletproof vests. Now, all of the men were held and arraigned at Pima County Justice Court. Booby received a life sentence, where Mackley and Pierpont both received the death penalty. John ended up getting extradited to Lake County Jail, Crown Point in Indiana, so he could be charged and tried for the murder of Officer Patrick O'Malley. 
but oh my word, the trip there was brutal. They had to keep changing planes and making all these stops and it was thought to have been a strategy to make John tired so that he would slip up or not be so charming at his trial. But the, oh my goodness, again, geography, love it. So the flight went from Douglas Airport in Arizona to El Paso, Texas, 22 minutes. Then from El Paso, Texas to Abilene, Texas, four hours. Then Abilene, Texas to Dallas, Texas, one hour, and they changed planes. Then from Dallas, Texas to Little Rock, Arkansas, an hour, 10 minutes. Then from Little Rock, Arkansas to Memphis, Tennessee for another plane change, and that was eight and a half hours. Then from Memphis, Tennessee to St. Louis, Missouri, which is seven and a half hours, and then finally landing at Midway Airport in Chicago after another six hours. But then they had to get from Chicago to Crown Point, which is an hour and a half drive. That is an insane flight schedule. And needless to say, John was cranky. When the flight landed, he was not having it. He didn't want to have any press in his face. There were some reporters trying to get to him and he was saying like, leave me alone, I want to sleep. But when they landed at Midway Airport, there was 32 heavily armed policemen and a 13 car police consort consisting of 29 troopers from Indiana. All for the infamous John Jackrabbit Dillinger, ready to take him to Crown Point for the murder of Officer Patrick O'Malley. You know what? I actually think I'm going to leave it there for today. I'm going to do a two-part story. (laughs) That's exciting. That's new for the podcast. Um, There is just so much that goes on in a short period of time. You know, he got released from prison in May of 1933 and we're up to January of 1934. He's robbed nine banks. He's escaped from another prison. He's met all these people. He's traveled around the country. Like it is just fascinating. And what happens from his time in Crown Point is another chaotic mess. So we shall circle back to this next week. Now I know John Dillinger is quite well known. There are so many movies and adaptations on his life, but You know, I spent a lot of time going through the FBI files, the documentations about him, just to find out things that you don't see in the movies or what was exaggerated in the movies and things like that. So next week, we will look at Crown Point, the new additions to the Dillinger Gang, the introduction of Malvin Purvis and the G-Men, more about what happens to Billy a botched job that nearly killed John that didn't have anything to do with a bank robbery, the power moves he made, and the ultimate betrayal that led to John's death. Oh, yeah, spoiler. Yeah, he dies. Sorry. <laughs> but anyway, I'm excited. Wow, I'm doing two parts. <laughs> so until next week, be safe, be good, be better, and all that cheesy crap, and I will catch you all next week for part two of John Jackrabbit Dillinger right here on Coffee and Crime.